brought a Bible, go please to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. This is in your, new, in your Old Testament. 2 Chronicles. If you find 1 and 2 Samuel, just keep going. You'll see 1 and 2 Kings, then 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. And if you find Psalms, they've gone too far. Chronicles, uh, not to be confused with Corinthians, uh, but this is in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading at verse 5, reading a few verses along the way between chapter 5 and chapter 7 tonight. But the word of the Lord reads in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 1, Thus all the work that Solomon, Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and all the utensils, and put them in the treasure of the house of God. Verse 11. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without, without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Judethon, and their sons, the kinsmen, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voices, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals, and instruments of music. And when they had praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. And then chapter 7, there beginning at verse 1. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the presence of the Holy Spirit and the promise of your presence to us. I ask tonight that you would anoint my lips of clay to preach the word of the living God, and I ask that you would anoint the hearing of this congregation, I pray that the word will produce in every one of our hearts a hunger for the presence of God. And I ask that in Jesus' name and for God's glory and the church said amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight. I want to speak this evening on the simple subject, fill my life with glory. Can you say that with me? Fill my life with glory. This is a simple prayer that I think every one of us can adopt tonight, a simple prayer to God that he would fill our life with his glory. When you think about the glory of God, often you think about uh, a shining light or a bright or brilliant uh, uh, presence of God through a light, but really the glory of God is the presence of God in a, a person's life or in a place. And more than anything in our life, what we ought to desire and long for 
is the glory of God. To have a life filled with God's presence. A life filled with the glory of God. And more often than not in the Bible, when the Bible describes glory, it doesn't describe it as a light, but rather as a weight. There is a weight that accompanies the glory of God in the scriptures. That is the same weight that you and I sense when we come into the presence of God. And when God fills our life with his glory, there is a weightiness to it, a heaviness to it, that God's name itself bears the weight of the glory of God. Now, there are several reasons why we ought to want to pray this prayer and why we ought to invite the presence of God and the glory of God to our life. The first one is this, that God's presence cancels out self. Say that with me tonight. God's presence cancels out self. When we are in the presence of God, our consciousness of who I am and what I need begins to wane. And we begin to magnify and to focus on the goodness and the greatness and the majesty of God. It is very difficult for self to abide in the presence of God. That's why often in God's presence we come to terms with our need for repentance. We come to terms with our need for a change of direction because God's presence exposes uh, self. It exposes the nature of man's heart without God and causes us to want to run toward God. And in order to do that, we have to do as John the Baptist did in his day and say, Lord, let me decrease so that you can increase. Can I just tell you, church, that every time we're focused on ourselves, there is a limited amount of glory. But when you and I put our focus and our attention on God, God's glory is, uh, is made known to us because he becomes the centerpiece of our affection and the centerpiece of our attention. Another thing is that the presence of God transforms us. In the presence of God, we are changed. That's why we need to pray, Lord, fill my life with glory. Because every one of us ought to have a desire to say, Lord, I want to change. I want to grow. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to become more like the man or woman that God created and intended me to be. And only the presence of God can change you. You know, I have been in the presence of presidents and ambassadors. I've been in the presence of judges, and none of them have ever changed my life. But when I have been in the presence of God, my life was changed. Come on, somebody. You and I need God's presence because God's presence has a transformative effect. When Saul of Tarsus, that violent oppressor of the church, when he had an encounter with the glory of God on the road to Damascus, the first words out of his mouth were, who are you, Lord? Think about that. One moment he was chasing Jesus, the next moment he's calling him Lord because his life had been transformed by the presence of God. His life was transformed by being in the presence of Jesus. Finally, then the presence of God changes our heart. The presence of God is able to change not only our, our general sense of direction, but it changes the very depths of our heart. And friend, that's why we need to live in the presence of God. 
That's why we need the glory of God. Because the glory of God, the presence of God, addresses things so far deep down into our heart. Things we didn't even know were there. It begins to heal wounds that were so deep and so old that we had forgotten about them. But the presence of God can do that. So tonight, I want this to be your prayer. Lord, fill my life with glory. Fill my life with your presence, with your power. This has to be the prayer of every believer. But especially, friends, you and I here at Kingsway Church, and those of you who are involved in ministry in this house, this needs to be your prayer. Lord, fill my life with glory. If you preach in this pulpit, this needs to be our prayer. Lord, fill my life with glory. If you sing or lead worship or play an instrument, this needs to be your prayer tonight. Lord, Fill my life with glory. If you teach our, our children and our, our young adults or our Sunday school classes, your prayer needs to be, Lord, fill my life with glory. Why, friend? Because the only hope for Beville is a church full of the glory of God. It is preachers and, and ministers of the word filled with the glory of God who can say, God, I want your presence more than anything else. In this world, I want your presence more than life itself. Say it again, Lord, fill my life with glory. Now, there are five things we notice in this passage that I want you to uh, notice tonight about the glory of God. What led to the glory of God coming into the temple? Now, we read tonight about Solomon. Solomon was the king of Israel who had built for God a house. He built a temple for God to dwell. This would be the first permanent structure in which the God of Israel would dwell. Prior to that, he had dwelled in a, in a tent with the nation of Israel for several hundred years. And now Solomon had built God a house, a temple. And it was an extraordinary place. It was a beautiful place. It was, first of all, beautiful because it was sitting atop a hill or a mountain called Zion, which God himself had led David, the, the father of Solomon, to choose. It was beautiful because it was built by uh, the greatest architects of the day. It was plated over in gold. And so when the sun sh shined on that house of God, it, the brilliance of that Bright gold shining in the sun could be seen for miles away. It was an extraordinary place. But you see, what made that house beautiful, what made that house significant, what made that place unique in the world was not the gold. It was not the hilltop. It was not the architecture. It was the presence of God. It was the fact that God had made himself known in that place. And that is true for us today, friends. I don't care how sophisticated or how educated you and I can be, how many titles we may have, or how many degrees may be on our wall. Doesn't matter how many times or how many things we remodel in this church. The only thing that matters is the presence of God. Everything else is superfluous. It's extra. If you have God's presence... A log cabin will do. But if you don't have God's presence, the most beautiful cathedrals are empty. The most beautiful places are empty if they're void of the presence of God. So we see that in the building of the temple and in the dedication 
of that temple that God brought his glory down on that house. But five things had to happen first. First of all, we notice in chapter 5 and verse 1, it says that thus all the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord. Can you say that word with me, work? You know that God gives his glory to people who are working. I, I, I don't know if you like that as much. But this is the absolute truth. God gives his glory to people who are on a mission. To churches that are doing something. I always put it to you like this. If you have an old car that doesn't run anymore and it's just sitting there in your backyard or on the, on the, on the, um, in the back lot somewhere, you don't go put gas in that car because that car isn't going anywhere. It's not working. It's not serving anybody. And see, the glory of God is always deposited on people and on churches that are doing something for God. Where there is a mission carry, being carried out for the glory of God. Solomon had a purpose. Solomon had a task. He had a responsibility. And as he carried out that work for God, God was giving him the grace that he needed and the wisdom that he needed and the finances that he needed in order to accomplish the purpose of God. How many of you would like to have the glory of God on your life? Amen, somebody. And so then if you want to have the glory of God, guess what you've got to do? You've got to get on the mission with God. Get on mission with God. What is God doing in your day, in our day? And get on mission with God. A lot of people want to have a lot of money, but they don't know what they want to have it for. And so if your money doesn't have a mission, why would God put glory and grace on that? If, you're, if you say, well, I have a lot of talents, I have a lot of skills, but if they are not useful to God, if they're not made available to God, why would God put his grace or his glory on that? God is looking for people who are willing to say, Lord, if you fill my tank with gas, I will go somewhere for you. I will do something for you. Lord, if you fill my lamp with oil, I will burn for you. I will be a light to the darkness of this world. Come on, somebody. I will be on the mission that you have required of my life and of the purpose that you have for me. Can I just tell you that the mission and the purpose of God on this church is to bring Beville to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his son. God has given us a mandate for our city. He has given us a mandate to pray for Beville and to witness to Beville and to bring Beville to the knowledge of Christ. And I'm excited because I'm watching Beville come through here. I'm watching people get saved and come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what? You and I have to stay on mission. We can't get lazy or distracted. We have to remember God is using us to accomplish his purpose, his objective in our day. And so long as we are moving toward God's purpose and God's agenda on God's mission, God will give his glory to his church. So you've got to learn to build something. You've got to learn to plant, to be always about the business of the Father. When Jesus was a little boy, the Bible tells us that he got left in Jerusalem by his parents by accident. And as several days passed before they realized that he was not with the, the caravan. And so they went back to Jerusalem and they were looking for him. And when they found him, they found him in the temple. They found him there teaching and being taught by those great scholars. 
And they, they asked him, they said, Jesus, Mary said, Jesus, why did you do this to us? We have been looking all over for you, boy. And Jesus said to her, he said, it is necessary. Haven't you heard? I need to be about my father's business. I'm on a mission. I have a purpose and an objective and agenda from God. Do you want God's glory in your life? Then get on God's mission. Get on God's purpose for your life. Now the second thing we see here is found in verse 11. It tells us that the priests sanctified themselves. Now this is the second thing we notice that God deposits his glory on working people. But he also deposits his glory on people who have sanctified themselves. What does that mean, that word sanctified? It literally means to set apart for a holy use. To set apart for a specific or special purpose. In my house growing up, my mother had some dishes that were sanctified. She had set them apart for Christmas and Thanksgiving. And, and we were not to touch those plates unless it was Christmas or Thanksgiving because she had sanctified them. Well, that's what God is saying. He's saying, I want to find a life that has been set apart for a special purpose, for a specific purpose, a, a holy cause. And friend, if you and I want to be used by God, we must understand this. God uses sanctified vessels. He uses people who are committed to living in holiness and righteousness before God. Now, I've challenged you with this uh, a couple Sundays ago on the fact that God is looking for people who walk in integrity, who will walk before him in, in sincerity of heart and integrity of heart because God wants to use a vessel that has been set apart for him, not one that serves him on Sunday and then lives for sin on Monday. He's looking for a church that says, God, I am going to live without mixture. I'm going to live for you and only for you. My life and my body and my mind are going to be belonging to you. I'm not going to share what you have with the world. I'm going to give all of me to the cause of Christ. The Bible said the priests had sanctified themselves regardless of their divisions. Now, I want you to notice that because that means that the priests had several rankings. There were priests who did different jobs, different functions. Some of them had menial jobs to do. Others of them were so special they got to enter into the holy place and minister to the Lord. And so there were different ranks. But the Bible said that they sanctified themselves regardless of their rank, regardless of their proximity to the holy place. What does that mean, Pastor? It means this. That God's servants, whether they are serving in one rank or another, have to sanctify themselves. They have to set themselves apart. You might say, well, you know, I'm not the high priest. I don't have to go into the holy place, so I don't have to live quite like that. But friend, God is looking for a people that said, Lord, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to sanctify myself. And I'm going to live for you no matter what my rank is. No matter if I'm preaching the sermon this week. No matter if I'm the one going to be up front. I want to live holy and righteous for you. You say, Pastor, how do I get sanctified? How do I live a sanctified life? 
I'll tell you, friend, there's only one way to do it, and that is to live in the presence of God, to be empowered by the Spirit of God, because the Holy Spirit, by the very definition of his name, is a sanctifier. He is the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, when he is in control of our life, he sanctifies us. He cleanses us. He changes the way we think, the way we speak, the way we operate, the things we do. The, the, the very essence of our life is transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. So he's looking for a people that are going to be set apart for his purpose, for his use. Oh, you and I here in the church, we have some, some things that have been set apart for God's use. And uh, they're up here. They're in, in objects, uh, instruments, and, uh, and sound equipment that we have as a church said, this guitar is only going to be used for God's service. It's not going to play in a uh, nightclub on Friday night and then on Sunday morning at church. Now, really, when you think about it, a guitar is just a guitar. It's the man playing it or the woman playing it that matters. But here's what I want you to know. If we have set apart basic things like guitars and, and uh, basses and amps and sound systems, how much more do you think it means for you to set apart your heart, to set apart your, yourself, to be useful for the purpose of God? Say amen, somebody. God is looking for a sanctified people, a people that has set themselves apart for his purpose. Now you go on in verse 13, it says that they played their trumpets in unison. Now we see the third thing that attracts the glory of God to a church and to a life is when they walk in unity, when they walk in unison and, and serve God in a spirit of unity. I spent all all our Bible study on Wednesday night talking about the power of unity. You know where the power is for us, church? It's when you and I come together in one spirit, in one accord. When we get behind uh, the, the thing that God is doing and we lay aside our agenda and say, you know what, I'm going to unite with God. I'm going to get behind what God is saying and what God is doing in our day. And when they began to come together in unity... There was a, an open door for the glory of God. Because you see, God doesn't put his anointing on division. God doesn't waste the oil of the anointing on divided things. He pours his grace and his anointing on those who have unity, who walk united now toward his purpose, toward his agenda. And the greatest place that you and I need to be united is this, that we need to be united in our spirit toward God. That is the most essential thing. Jesus said a day is coming when those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. You and I have to come into this, into this understanding that our strength comes when we worship God in spirit, when we serve God in spirit, when we honor God in our spirit. We come into unity and to the purpose of God. And friend, you and I have to be on the alert because the enemy is a divider. He's always looking for a way to come in and divide, to come in and to destroy the thing that God is doing. And you and I have to be on the alert against that and come against him with the authority of the word of God and with the wisdom of the spirit to say, devil, you're not going to divide us. 
You're not going to break us up into little pieces. You're not going to break us up into fractions. We are going to be one body, one church, united with one effort. And that is to see the glory of God in Beville and to see the glory of God in our day. Say amen, somebody. Unity is essential in every aspect of our life as a church. And you see, here's what I'm talking about. You and I can be united in, in one sense and not in the other. The, the musicians, for instance, can all be united by playing in the same key. They can be united by playing the same song. And we can be united with them by singing the same lyrics of the same song. But if we're not all in the spirit, then we're not united. You see, we've got all in the same key, and we all got all the same song, but we all need to be in the same spirit. We all need to have the same mission, that is, for God's glory to invade our life and to invade this church and to invade this city. When you and I come into the spirit in unity and we begin to put ourself aside and say, Lord, I want you, I want you, I want your presence, I want your power, then we are able to, uh, to worship God in spirit and in truth. The fourth thing we see here is they weren't just united, but they were in worship. The Bible said that in unison, they began to play their trumpets and the singers began to make themselves heard with one voice. To do what? To praise and to glorify God. This, this body of, of ministers was united in worship. They were united with one single purpose. That God would get the glory out of their life. That God would get the glory out of the service that they were providing. Church, this must be our, our, uh, our life. It must be a life of worship. A life that seeks to bring glory to God. You realize that worship isn't just singing songs. Worship isn't just uh, listening to you know, prayers or praying prayers. Worship is a lifestyle. When you show up to work on time and you stay late and you do a good job when nobody's looking, that's an act of worship. When you don't cheat on your taxes and you, 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 you pay the IRS what you owe, that's an act of worship. When you pay your bills on time, that's an act of worship. It's getting real quiet in here tonight. But you know, worship goes beyond just lifting your hands and singing out loud. Worship is the way you live that expresses that although nobody's watching me, God is watching me and I want Him to be glorified. I want Him to be honored. I want Him to be exalted. I want His name to receive fame and glory out of my life. And this is, must be the desire of our hearts to say, God, I want you to be glorified. I want you to get the credit. I want you to get the focus. I don't want men to say, oh, how good a preacher that is, but rather to focus on the fact of the Jesus that we preach, of the glorious gospel that we preach, that, that there is a, a Jesus that saves and heals and delivers and sets men free. When you and I come together with that agenda in our heart to say, God, yours be the glory, yours be the honor, yours be the praise, then our worship is true and our life of worship will be fruitful in every sphere of life and in every aspect of life. They worship God with singing, with praises to God, and they glorified God. And this was their song. Listen to their song. He indeed is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting. Now they began to sing 
and worship God for who he was. They didn't start worshiping him for what he was going to give them. They didn't start worshiping him because he was going to give them a, a, a three-car garage. They didn't start worshiping him because he was going to give them a new job. All of those things, sure enough, might come. But they began to worship him by the simple essence of who he was. The Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting. And friend, when you and I begin to worship God in that spirit, when we begin to say, Lord, I don't have everything I want, but I'm going to worship you. I don't have everything that I have asked you for, but I'm going to worship you. I haven't gotten all the answers to my prayers yet, but I'm going to worship you because you are worthy of my worship. You are worthy of my song. You are worthy of my life. His glory fills that house with his presence. The Bible said that the glory of God filled the house to such an extent that the priests were unable to move because of the weight of the glory of God. The glory of God had come into that house as they began to worship the Lord. As they had united in one spirit and in one accord and began to worship God, that cloud of God's presence descended upon the temple. And they couldn't move. They couldn't walk about. There was a silence, a stillness that came into that house. So it is when God's presence fills our life that often the greatest thing we can do is just be still. Just, just recognize his presence. Just honor the fact that he is there. Sometimes he doesn't need us to say anything else but just to be in awe of who he is. Now there's one last thing that we notice in this text. text and we see it in chapter 7 in verse 4. It says that King Solomon and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of oxen and 120 sheep. Thus the king and all the people brought, uh, dedicated the house of God. Now notice that. 22,000 head of oxen. How many, how many oxen is that, Brother Joe? That's a whole lot of cows, you know that. And that's a whole lot of money. Really, that's what that is. That's a whole lot of money. 22,000 oxen were slaughtered in dedication of the temple of the Lord. And 120 sheep. And that was only Solomon's offering. That wasn't even the people's offering. That was just the king's offering. Now listen, you see this. The glory of God came when the people were, were uh, working and there was a purpose. The glory of God came when there was a sanctified priesthood. The glory of God came when there was unity and there was worship. But finally, the glory of God came when there was sacrifice. When there was a people that were willing to say, God, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give of myself in order for your house to be made full. You know, Many people today, they want to live a Christian life that doesn't involve sacrifice. A life that costs them nothing. But you see, friends, the Christian life ultimately requires something of you. If you're going to be useful to God in any great way, there's going to be a sacrifice involved. There's going to be a price that has to be paid. And the beauty of it is this, that when you're doing it for God, and when God is getting the glory and God is inspired to sacrifice, the sacrifice doesn't hurt. 
It doesn't feel like a sacrifice. When you're doing what God has called you to do, giving to him isn't hard to do. You know, there are many people in this church who God has called and equipped for ministry. And I've just come tonight to let you know that there is a cost. There is a cost to following Christ. And there is a, a cost to being useful to him. Think about the disciples. When Jesus called Peter, Peter was fishing. Can you think, do you think you could go three years without going to work and still manage to feed your family and get things done? Peter, the Bible said he left his nets, he left his boats, he left his business in order to follow Christ. There was a cost involved in what he had to do. But the glory of his life became far greater than the cost that he could have possibly paid for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so many throughout the ages have paid the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Many have paid even with their own lives, with their own, with their own physical body. They have died in the cause of the gospel. I remember the story of Adoniram Judson, the first missionary uh, to the nations from North America. He went overseas from North America uh, to Burma. And before he left, he, he married the, the woman that would become his wife when, when he proposed a marriage to her father. He said to him, sir... I'm asking you to consent to allowing your daughter to marry me and to never see her again in this earthly life. He was committed to leaving the North American continent and going to Burma and never coming back again. He was telling his father-in-law, I'm asking you to give me your daughter and to consent to never seeing her again. What a price had to be paid so that the Burmese nation could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Adoniram Judson preached seven years before he had a single convert. And then he preached seven more years for convert number two. I know some pastors that would quit after seven years, but he kept going. And seven more years, he had two converts. And when he died, he didn't have more than a very small handful of converts. But by the time he died, he had published the Bible in the Burmese language. The Bible that they read today in Burma was, was printed or, or, or published by a man, translated by a man, who looked to God and said, God, I'll pay the price. I just want your glory to be on my life. I want your glory to be on my life. This year, we, uh, pardon, this week, we said goodbye to the great evangelist uh, that, the, that the last century knew. Uh, Billy Graham was buried this week. And as we said goodbye to that great man of God, I remember uh, as all the things were being said and done, they played a clip of one of his quotes as he was preaching. And he said, there's a cost, but I am willing to pay the cost. And when you read the story of Billy Graham, you read of the great cost to him and his family. The many weeks and months often that he spent on the road away from his children. You wonder, is it really worth the cost? But friend, when you look at the life he lived and the way that God poured glory upon his life, there is no question in my mind, having made the same commitment of my own life and, and in, in encouraging you to do the same, there is no question in my mind that a life lived for the glory of God will not only see the glory of God, but God's reward and God's blessing. For you see, if it is true that I, as I say, that there is a cost to serving God. Can I tell you this? That no one who has ever paid the cost 
has gone without the reward because the reward is far greater than the cost. God will bless and God will honor that life. It says, Lord, I'll sacrifice. I'll give of myself. I'll give of my time. I'll give my talent. I'll give even my treasure. I just want your glory on my life. I want you to use me. I want you to make something. I'll make my life count. Solomon's offering reminds us of the fact that sometimes giving to God hurts. Sometimes it comes with a pinch. When you and I are committed to the sacrifice, God says to us, you won't go unrewarded, but rather you will see God's blessing and God's glory on your life. I close with this. The apostle Peter, he said to Jesus, he said, Lord, what about us? What do we get? We have given our, our whole lives to follow you. And Jesus said these words. He said, Peter, no one. Say no one. Say it again. No one. That includes us. No one who gives up houses and lands and husbands and wives and children for my sake will not receive 100 times as much in this life and in the life to come. Jesus didn't just tell him, Peter, hold on, heaven's going to be real nice. He said, no, Peter, if you are willing to pay the cost in this life, I will reward you in this life and in the life to come. And this evening, I want you and I to be sensitive to that and to say, Lord, I want my life to count. Fill my life with glory. Fill my life with your presence and let my life be a vessel that you can use. Friend, if you will commit your life to that, you'll commit yourself to God's purpose and sanctify yourself and walk in unity in the house of God and live a life of worship that glorifies God. If you will be willing to pay the cost, God says, I will put my glory on your life. The Bible said that when Solomon had finished praying, that fire came out of heaven. That fire of God's glory came upon that house. And so it is that God wants to fill your life with glory. He wants to fill your home with glory. He wants to fill our city with glory. And that glory will come when the church has made her commitment. That glory is coming. And I want to just tell you tonight, some of you have made already great sacrifices. You have already given great things for God. And God says, you are going to see my glory in your days. You are going to see me manifest in you what I promised so long ago. Would you stand with me, please, this evening? I want to invite you just to come into this altar. Just come into this altar tonight and make this your prayer. Lord, fill my life with your glory. Fill my life with your presence. However many days I have, however many years I have, let them count. Let them be full of your glory, full of your presence. Say to God, God, whatever has to change, whatever has to bend or be broken in me so that I can be useful to you, I'm here. Just don't let me be the same. I don't want to continue in the rut. 
I want to be the man, the woman, the young man, the young lady that you have called me and designed me to be. Father, this is our prayer tonight, that your glory would fill our life. Not just for a moment, not just for a service, an altar call. But that your glory would fill our life so that your glory may fill this city and this region and this nation and our world.